Chapter Eleven of Dynamic Thought or the Law of Vibrant Energy by William Walter Atkinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Eleven The Theory of Dynamic Thought. From the preceding chapters, we have learned that one, the forms of force or radiant energy known as light, heat, magnetism, and electricity, are modes of motion, arising from the original motion of the particles of substance, molecules, atoms, corpuscles, or electrons, and that such original motions of the particles arises from the operation of the law of attraction. 2. That the forms of attractive force or energy known as gravitation, cohesion, adhesion, atomic attraction, chemical affinity or chemism, and corpuscular attraction also arise from the operation of the law of attraction. 3. That from the above it follows that all manifestations of force and energy in inorganic substance, viz., both radiant energy in its forms of light, heat, magnetism, electricity, etc., and also attractive energy in its forms of gravitation, cohesion, adhesion, chemical affinity or atomic attraction, and corpuscular attraction, arise from the operation of the law of attraction. It will be well to remember that the fact that some of the above forms of radiant force or energy, such as heat, light, magnetism, and electricity, may arise from motion transmitted from other substance, does not alter the matter. For if they arise from waves from some other substance, it merely follows that the original motion that gave rise to the waves arose from the operation of the law of attraction. Or if they arise from interrupted motion, it merely follows that the motion that is interrupted may be traced back to original motion that arose from the operation of the law of attraction. So that all mechanical power, and all the forms of energy or force producing the same, omitting for the moment the forms of energy or force of living organisms which will be described later on, arise from the operation of the law of attraction. Now for the next step. We have seen that the operation of the law of attraction results from vital mental action on the part of the life and mind principle inherent in the nature of the particles of substance. Consequently, all forms of energy and force arising from the operation of the law of attraction, the latter being the result of vital mental action, then it follows that all forms of energy and force having its origin in the law of attraction are manifestations of vital mental action. But this is not all we have not considered the energy and force abiding in and manifested by what are called living organisms, such as human, animal, and plant life, which are manifested by the physical organisms or bodies of man, animal, and plant. In order to avoid a long digression into the realms of biology, we will omit all but a passing reference to the theories that seek to identify the action of the cells of organic life with those of the particles of inorganic life. For remember that organic substance has its molecules, atoms, and corpuscles, as well as its higher combinations known as cells, and we will seek the ultimate source of all forms of force and energy exhibited by organic life in that which lies back of physical action. We need no argument here, for all will readily recognize that behind the physical action of man, animal, and plant lies life and mind and that therefore all force and energy arising from such action must be manifestations of vital mental action. And so summing up our conclusions regarding force and energy and motion and then an organic substance, we arrive at an understanding of the basic proposition of the theory of dynamic thought which is as follows. Basic Proposition That all forms and exhibition of force, energy, motion, and power 
are manifestations of vital mental action, and that consequently at the last there is no force but vital mental force, no energy but vital mental energy, no motion but vital mental motion, no power but vital mental power. It is possible that the average reader will fail to recognize the tremendous importance of the above proposition. It is most revolutionary, and is not only directly opposed to the materialistic theory which makes matter the dominant factor, the only factor, in fact, in life, but it is also far different from the opinion of the average person who has been taught to think of blind force, dead matter, mechanical energy, power of machinery, engines, etc. And yet you are invited to go back over the path that leads up to the theory and test and examine every bit of the road for weak spots, insecure bridges, etc. The writer feels that the work will bear examination. He thinks that he has succeeded not only in proving that 1. the universe is alive and thinking, and 2. that mind is dominant. But he believes also that he has made at least partially understandable the old occult and metaphysical aphorism that has been heard so much in these later days. The statement that all is mind, mind is all. The only fact needed now is proof of the old occult theory that matter or substance blends gradually into mind and that in the end is found to have its origin there. So far science has not given us this proof, but it begins to look that way although science does not dream of what lies at the end of the road she is traveling. She tells us that she sees matter melting into force or energy and that perhaps the universe may be found to be energy or force at the last. But she ignores the fact that her investigations have already proven, to those who know how to combine them, that mind is back of force, that all force is mental force at the last. And so, you see, it is not so far a cry from matter to mind in these days of the twentieth century. The bridge is being erected by the materialists, but the mentalist will be the first to cross over it. But there are many important questions ahead of us for consideration in relation to the theory of dynamic thought, and we must hasten on to them. One of the first questions that must be considered is that of the transmission of force, energy, or motion. Science has told us that light travels and is contagious, that heat travels and is contagious, that electricity travels and is contagious, that magnetism travels and is contagious. But it has failed to find evidences of cohesive force or adhesive force or the force of gravitation or the force of chemical affinity or the force of corpuscular affinity being contagious. And although it recognizes that they must travel beyond the limits of the bodies manifesting them, yet it has hazarded no theory or hypothesis worthy of the name to account for the phenomenon. It informs us that light, heat, magnetism, and electricity travel via waves of the ether at the rate of 184,000 miles per second, and that when they reach their destination the ether waves set up similar vibrations in the substance with which they come in contact. The only explanation of the method or medium of travel is the Aristotle's ether theory, which, while generally accepted as a working hypothesis, nevertheless brings a broad smile to the face of any thoughtful scientist who considers it in detail. As for the medium of the transmission of gravitation, cohesion, chemical affinity, and molecular affinity, science is mute. All that she says is that gravitation is believed to travel instantaneously over distances, that it takes light traveling at the rate of 184,000 miles per second, over 2,000 years to travel. Verily, gravitation defies scientific theories and estimates and laughs at the either. Let us see if the dynamic thought theory throws any light on the subject. 
The first step in the solution of the problem of the transferring and communication of energy is the remembrance of the fact that the energy is purely mental, be it gravitation, affinity, or attraction on the one hand, or light, heat, magnetism, or electricity on the other, it is all mental force. Attraction in all of its forms has been recognized as mental action. And the vibrations that cause light, heat, magnetism, and electricity have been seen to result from the law of attraction, and therefore are mental. This being the case, would it not be wise for us to look for a solution of the transmission of force and energy in the region from which it originated, the mental region? Does not this seem reasonable? Should not the explanation for mental effects be sought in a mental cause? And should not the medium between mind and mind be looked for in the mental region? Taking the liberty of peeping into some of the succeeding chapters of this book, getting a little ahead of the story, as it were, let us consider the operation of mind in the higher forms of life. Without argument or proof at this point, let us remember the well-founded statements of fact, and the old occult teachings as well that the mind is not confined to the limits of the body, but extends as an aura for some distance beyond its physical form. Let us also remember that the phenomena grouped together under the general subject of thought transference, thought transmission, telepathy, or the best term of all, telesthesia, meaning literally far-off sensation. The writer imagines that he hears the yell of derision go up at this point from the materialistic personage or the man on the street, who has been induced to read this book by some well-meaning friend. Thought transference, fiddlesticks, we may hear him cry in imagination. But let this reader remember, fiddlesticks or no fiddlesticks, that thought transmission is a proven fact, and that thousands of people know it to be so absolutely from their own experience. It is too late in the day for sneers at the mention of the term. Well then, since force is mental and we are looking for a mental explanation for the phenomenon of transmission of force, does it not seem natural to consider thought transmission in that connection? Answering a possible objection of some critical reader to the effect that before a sensation may be received the receiver must have sense organs, a very good objection, but one that is answered by science itself, let us read on. Haeckel, the distinguished scientist, in his endeavor to prove that man's senses are but a development of something in inorganic life, has called our attention to the fact that molecules and atoms are capable of receiving sensations and responding thereto. He makes quite a point of this in his latest works and remarks, among many other things, showing his positive view on the subject of sensation in the inorganic world. I cannot imagine the simplest chemical and physical process without attributing the movements of the material particles to unconscious sensation. And again, the idea of chemical affinity consists in the fact that the various chemical elements perceive the qualitative differences in other elements, experience pleasure or revulsion at contact with them, and execute specific movements on this ground. He also quotes approvingly the remarks of Nageli, who said, If the molecules possess something that is related, however distantly, to sensation, it must be comfortable to be able to follow their attractions and repulsions, uncomfortable when they are forced to do otherwise. Haeckel also says that in his opinion the sensations in animal and plant life are connected by a long series of evolutionary stages with the simpler forms of sensation that we find in the inorganic elements, and that reveal themselves in chemical affinity. Is not this strong enough? Perhaps we may now be permitted at least to assume that even the atoms, molecules, and corpuscles have something like sensation. Someone may now object that Haeckel speaks of contact between the particles, and that sensation by contact even in an atom is far different from the sensation without contact at a short distance quite right. 
but if the objector will take the trouble to review the teaching of science regarding the relation of the particles, he will see that the particles are never exactly in contact except in moments of collision, which, by the way, they carefully avoid. The corpuscles, as we have shown, have plenty of room in which to move about, but they move in orbits around each other. The atoms combine, but there is always room between them, as may be seen by reference to the teachings regarding the ether, which fills up the cracks according to the theory. And the molecules also have plenty of room, as may be seen by reference to that part of the subject, particularly to the comparison of the drop of water magnified to the size of the earth, in which the molecules would appear about the size of the original drop, with more room between each than their own size. In fact, as we have been shown in a previous chapter, the particles are attracted only to a certain distance, at which they resist the impulse or attraction and stand off a bit. They will not be forced too near without creating disturbances and manifestations of force, and if they are separate beyond a certain distance, the attractive power ceases to operate. But there is always some room between them, and they bridge over that room and exert and receive the attractive power in some way. This is true not only of the particles, but of the great bodies, like the earth and planets, that are attracted and attract over great distances. Now for the question. How do they exert sense and attractive power over the great comparative distance, great comparatively as well in atom as in planet and sun? Someone may answer the question closing the last paragraph with the word electricity. Very good. Electricity, like the ether, comes in quite handy when one is forced to explain something not known. Electricity, like the glacial period, Aristotle's ether, natural laws and suggestion, is a most handy weapon of argument and often acts as a preventative to further inquiry and investigation until some sufficiently irreverent of precedent arises to ask, but why, and how, and starts the ball rolling again. But electricity will not answer in this case, for the rate of the travel of electricity is well known, 184,000 miles per second, which fast as it is assumes the crawl of a slow freight when compared with the instantaneous rate of travel of gravitation. And then electricity requires a medium and gravitation does not and in many other ways the two were seen to be totally different. And in the case of the space between the atom and molecule and corpuscle, it is no more reasonable to say electricity than it would be to say heat or light, and magnetism is not available for obvious reasons. Remember that electricity, light, and heat are caused by motion resulting from attraction, and the child cannot procreate the parent. Heat, light, and electricity may beget each other, and they do, and gravitation may procreate heat, light, and electricity, but heat, light, and electricity cannot procreate gravitation. Never. And light, heat, and electricity require replenishing from the common source of energy. But gravitation is self-sufficient and asks no replenishing, or storage battery, or powerhouse. Electricity, heat, and light come and go, appearing, manifesting, and disappearing, swallowed up by each other or by substance. But gravitation is always there, unchangeable, unwavering, immutable, invariable, something above matter and force, something majestic, awe-inspiring, sublime. Does it take a wild flight of the imagination to see that this something that is not matter and not force must be a manifestation of mind? Let us first apply this idea of thought transference to the operation of the law of attraction between the corpuscles, atoms, and molecules of substance, particles of substance. Particles are believed to move to or away from each other in accordance with the workings of attraction and affinity in its varying degrees. First, they must desire to move, 
not desire in the developed sense that we feel it, but still elementary feeling or inclination or tendency, call it what you will. But it remains rudimentary mental emotion. An e-motion, leading to motion. This is not a pun. Look up the meaning of the word emotion and you will see its application. Then following the desire comes the action in the direction of gratifying it. The particles act to gratify desire in two ways. Acting at a distance, remember, they exert the attractive force which the writer believes to be mental force transmitted by mind, projection, a mental or psychic bond or connection being thus established. By means of this bond of mind the particle endeavors to 1. draw itself to the object, and 2. to draw the object toward itself. In the case of the molecule this desire and movement seems to be mutual and evidenced by and to all molecules alike, providing they be within molecular distance, as science calls it. But in the case of the atoms it seems to be different, for there is found a greater degree of choice or elective affinity. This election or choice is not altogether free, but depends upon the relative likes and dislikes of certain kinds of elements, as we have seen in previous chapters, although to be sure these elements are all made out of the same stuff in different combinations. The details of corpuscular attraction are not known, so it cannot be told whether preferences exist, or whether in the words of the street all corpuscles look alike to each other. It would appear, however, that there must be some reasons for preference among the corpuscles, else they would always form in the same combinations, always act alike to each other as they are alike in other actions, and thus there would be but one element or kind of atom formed instead of the seventy-five already known. To be sure in this case it might be that the one kind of atom formed would be the atom of hydrogen, and that all other elements or atoms were modifications of that one, just proving the dream of the scientist of the nineteenth century. But as Kipling would say, that is another story. To return to the particle which we left trying to draw the other particle to itself and itself toward the other, there is no material connection between them, and electricity and magnetism will not answer, so what is to be done? Evidently the particle knows, for it exerts a drawing power or force by means of the mental connection, and the two come together. The particle evidently is able to exert a repelling or moving away power by reversing the process, the mental bond acting as the medium. This may cause a smile because we have never seen an instance of bodies pulling themselves together by intangible bonds. Haven't we? Then how about two pieces of magnetized steel or two electrified substances? Oh, that's different, you say. Why different? Isn't the bond intangible? And haven't we seen that both electricity and magnetism were mental actions also? Oh, uh, but well, oh, yes, that's it. Perhaps the attracting force is magnetism or electricity. No, that will not do, for we have seen that electricity and magnetism were products of this attraction, not producers of it. The attraction must come before electricity and magnetism, not after them. You are mixing cause and effect. And even if you were right, and you cannot be, wouldn't the electrical or magnetic force be called into operation and directed by the mental action arising from the desire? You cannot get away from mental action when you study the law of attraction. But how about the fact that the heat causes particles to change their vibrations and draw apart, and all that sort of thing, and electricity likewise, you may ask? Surely this takes the matter away from mental action, doesn't it? Well, the writer thinks that the phenomenon referred to only helps prove his theory, and he will endeavor to so prove to you. The consideration of the facts related in this chapter leads us to a supplemental proposition to our basic proposition, which may be stated as follows. 
Supplemental Proposition 1. Not only is the law of attraction the manifestation of a mental process or vital mental action, but also the actual force or energy used in bringing the particles of substance in closer relation in accordance with that law is in its nature a vital mental force or energy operating between bodies or particles of substance without a material medium. End of chapter 11. Recording by Philip Gould.